see how it goes this morning, how many of you show up to the quarterly gathering this evening. <clears throat> well, while I tell you a little bit about myself, uh, let me just first say I'm very thankful to be here this morning to have been invited to bring the word of God. Um, and while I tell you a little bit about myself or my church, uh, would you just turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16? So I am uh, the pastor or one of the pastors of Sycamore Reformed Baptist Church in East Moline, Illinois, right on the border of Illinois and Iowa. Uh, we live in Iowa, in fact. Um, half of our church is from Iowa and half from Illinois. Uh, been a pastor there since 2008. Uh, I had attended Westminster Seminary in California when IRBS was still there and had opportunity to get to know uh, Sam and uh, Pastor Sam and uh, Pastor Micah Renahan as well and all the Renahan. So it's a great privilege to be back to, to be with you all. I've chosen Ezekiel 16 this morning for my text, uh, partly because I've preached on it recently and so it was fresh in my mind. Um, but what's more, with present-day Israel in the news, it seemed relevant to speak on a passage this morning, a passage of scripture that touches upon, not the political stuff, but uh, I'll, I'll reiterate that in a minute, but it touches upon how we are to think about how, uh, think about Israel in relation to the promises of God and in relation to the church. Ezekiel 16 speaks to this issue. In fact, it speaks to Israel about the future of Israel insofar as it concerns their covenant, their relationship to the Lord. Uh, this is a, a long chapter, um, and because of its length, we'll pick up our reading in verse 53, and, and that will be the uh, 53 through the end of the chapter will be the main portion of our, our text for, for this morning. Uh, however, I will seek to summarize the rest of the, the chapter and give its context in the course of, of the message itself. Uh, you'll notice with me before we begin our reading that verse 53 begins a section describing Israel's future, their future restoration and the sort of redemption in which her, her hope should thereon out consist. Uh, as well as how we are to understand the extent of God's plan for the Jewish people today. Again, we'll elaborate on that more in a minute. So we'll pick up our reading in verse 53, but before we do that, let's just uh, pray and ask the Lord to, to help us. <clears throat> our Father, we, we pray as we open up the word of God that, that our Lord Jesus would be our preacher, that his spirit would be unto us this morning, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. So read with me, Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 53. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captains, captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. 
when your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, returned to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters returned to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister, Sodom, was not, only, was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and of the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters. For I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Amen. As we come to this text this morning, we'd like to see as our, as our main point this morning that Israel's hope of a future is not in some reestablishment of the old covenant in the land, but in the establishment of a new covenant in Christ through whom the old is fulfilled. As we approach this text then this morning, we'll do so under two headings. First, understanding the context. We'll run through the verses that we didn't read and gather the context. And then secondly, from verse 53 and on, the future hope of Israel. So first, understanding the context. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians on account of their spiritual adultery. And now Ezekiel is preaching to Judah, Judah in the south, the southern kingdom. You'll notice the particular reference to the abominations of Jerusalem in verse 2. And Ezekiel is foretelling the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian invasion for the very same sins that her sister Samaria in the north, the northern capital, had been carried, carried away by the Assyrians. In a personification of Jerusalem, Judah's, the southern kingdom's capital city, in a personification of Jerusalem, verses 1 through 7 describe her Gentile-like beginnings, her Gentile-like roots, describes her like a baby born into a Canaanite family. The, the historical connection here is that Jerusalem, from where they derived the name Jews, Jerusalem was a pagan city before the Lord had covenanted with them, before the Lord had placed his temple there and had made it into the city of David. 
He describes them as an abandoned, unloved, unwanted, Gentile-born baby left in an open field to die. And the Lord nevertheless sustained her life, made her grow, made her flourish like a plant in the field. And then in verses 8 through 14, the Lord betroths her. The Lord covenants with her. He covers her nakedness. So verse 8, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord Jehovah. He saved her from her pagan past. He took her to himself in marriage, distinguishing her from all the nations and all the cities around her, and he caused her to turn from her idols and to serve the living God. This is a, a reference, a, an allusion here to the Mosaic Covenant, to the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, and its further ramifications in, and, and ratifications in the Davidic Covenant as well. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 speaks similarly of this covenant by employing, again, this, this metaphor of marriage wherein he says, he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. And this is the direction that Ezekiel goes as well. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Verses 15 through 34 therefore describe Judah's betrayal. Verse 15, but you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Verse 22, in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare struggling in your blood. They had forgotten their humble beginnings. They began to presume upon the grace of God. And they became, well, they became like the church of Laodicea, who said, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And does not know that she is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so after the prophet lists some of the ways that they have broken the covenant, have transgressed his law, he says to them in verse 30, How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. So in verses 35 through 52, the Lord pronounces judgment upon Judah, pronounces their banishment. He says that he will, he will uncover their sins. He will show that she indeed is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And in verse 38, remarks that he will judge her as a woman who breaks wedlock 
or shed blood are judged. He will bring blood upon her in fury and jealousy. And then verse 43, because you did not remember the days of your, of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. Just as we read in the book of Hosea regarding the northern kingdom, now he will divorce the southern kingdom as well. He, he, he speaks here of their Babylonian captivity or exile. Not only have they behaved just like their sister in the north, Jerusalem has done even worse things than Samaria. And so she will now join her sister in judgment and in exile. Not only... <clears throat> She, she, thought that she, was, she thought that she was even better than Samaria, better than her sister, much better than her sister. But she's the same. In fact, Ezekiel says she's even worse. Verse 46. Your elder sister in Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you, and your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. You did not merely walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all their ways. More corrupt. Make note of these verses. Um, Jerusalem has forgotten what family she has been born into or was born into, what she came from. She's from, forgotten that she has two sisters, one to the north and one to the south. Samaria, to the north, was the capital city of the northern kingdom, already in exile. Sodom, from the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah, had been a city to the south of Jerusalem and was representative of the worst of the, of the Gentile world from which the city of Jerusalem originated. These are her sisters. And she had become more corrupt than them. No different, though perhaps worse. He says to them at the, at the end of verse 52 that they were more righteous than you Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame because you justified your sisters. Judah justified her sisters, Samaria and Sodom. He, he says the same thing in verse 51. You have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. And again in verse 54. You should be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. What does he mean by this? How did, how did this personified Jerusalem justify and comfort Samaria and Sodom? How did the southern kingdom comfort the northern kingdom and, and we could say, the, the Gentile world? Answering this helps us to see why their sins are even a greater offense than her sisters. And the answer is this, that in short, Jerusalem's sins made Samaria and Sodom feel justified 
and more comfortable with their own sins. Why? Because although she had expressed her disapproval for their sins, Ezekiel says that Samaria and Sodom were a byword in their mouths. I'll comment on that verse in a minute because the, there's a difference of translation here. But, but Samaria and Sodom were a byword in their mouths. And so even though she expressed her disapproval for their sins, she did so self-righteously and hypocritically. Because in the, in the end, she committed the very same sins. She did the very same things. So Samaria and Sodom could justify themselves and comfort themselves in their sins and say something like, see, I'm no worse than my sister Jerusalem. And if they've done the same, then perhaps what I've done is not so bad after all. Perhaps I'm even justified. That's it. Look, look, look how she vindicates me and affirms me and all that I've done. And that makes her sin worse. It makes it worse because she has not only done exactly the same thing, she has not learned from her sisters. What's more, though, by doing the very same thing, she has affirmed them in their sin and has helped them to suppress their own consciences by blunting the edge of the Lord's discipline in their lives. This makes her sin worse than theirs, an even greater offense to God, for which she should be doubly ashamed. For these things, for these things, the Lord will make a further example out of her, will banish her, will exile her in Babylon, covenantally divorcing her, uniting her with her two sisters who are already dispersed among the nations in judgment because she is no different. And her only hope of a future is altogether wrapped up with her coming to the realization for her own self that she is no different. That brings us then to verse 53, wherein we find here in our second point the hope of Israel, the future of Israel. Notice with me, notice with me how verse 53 begins. When I bring back their captives, when I bring them back, in typical, um, typical fashion of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel begins in verse 53, almost seamlessly transitioning to a later day, a, a, a later day, a future day of restoration. He foretells Israel's future, wherein Jerusalem's future merges with Samaria's and Sodom's no less than in their, their judgment and how their judgment merged together with them in exile future day of restoration. And by future, by future here, the future of Israel, I, I'm referring to a restoration on the other side of exile, but not some future event that is yet to make the front page of the newspaper. I'm not referring to that. 
I'm referring to what, what hope remains for the Jews on the other side of their covenantal divorce and the exile. Does any hope remain for them? Or for the old covenant that God had made with them? We can approach this, this question um, by asking three other questions. First, what is the present status of national Israel? Secondly, what becomes of the Old Covenant? And then thirdly, using Paul's language in 11, Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, what shall we say then, has God cast away his people? So first, think through this with me. What is the present status of national Israel? The nation of Israel is frequently in the news, it's in the news now, is consistently a big part of US politics and foreign policy. And what I have to say here has nothing to do with foreign policy and all of that in and of itself. Has even less to do with the conflict presently in the news, except that many evangelicals show not only a humanitarian concern, a geopolitical concern for Israel, but also a religious concern, a religious preference, referring to them as God's chosen people or as God's covenant people and so on. But our text speaks to this very issue, and it would suggest a different perspective we see essentially the same thing here in relation to to the southern that we see in relation to the southern kingdom or we, we see essentially the same thing here in relation to the southern kingdom that we are able to see in Hosea chapter 1 or Hosea 2 and Hosea 3 for instance in relation to the northern kingdom the exile marked the beginning of the end for both the northern and the southern kingdoms. The beginning of the end as it relates to their special, their national, their covenantal privilege as the covenant people of the Lord. We see this already in, well, what we have already said as we've worked our way through the chapter. Um, but we see it again in verses 56 and 57. So verse 56, verse 56 should probably be read as a rhetorical question. And in this case, I think the ESV is uh, the better translation. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? In other words, when they wanted to speak of those wicked Gentiles, those who are aliens of the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, those having no hope and without God in the world, they would mention Sodom, the infamous Sodom, as a byword in their mouth, not realizing that they themselves were spiritually no better. And so the thought is completed in verse 57. We're in the ESV, again, better translation. Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her 
and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around, all around who despise you. For, beginning in the exile, verse 59, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Okay, in other words, he will break off his covenantal relationship with them and make them a byword to the nations around them, just as they have despised their marriage oath and have broken the covenant that he had made with them. And so in answer to the question, what is the status of national Israel after the exile? We may say this. It is the very same status as every other geopolitical nation on earth, period. They may still be a nation today, a geopolitical entity, but they no longer exist as such by divine right. Just as Adam, our, our first parent, just as Adam bears the honor of being the first man and the shame of being the first sinner, even today Israel bears both the honor and the shame of being the Lord's former wife honor for their former privilege with, within redemptive history, shame for their fall from that place of privilege, a fall that makes them no different than either Samaria or Sodom, though perhaps more shameful precisely because of the privilege that they had been given. Listen, covenants establish and govern kingdoms with them being cut off from the Lord's covenant, having broken it, so also has the nation's divine right to exist, as such, been revoked. And that leads to our second question. What becomes of the old covenant? In other words, did the Lord simply discard the old covenant? Did he simply replace it with another, as if starting from scratch? And did the promises given to Israel then fail, even if the cause may be laid at their own feet? Let me just make a few observations here. In the latter half of verse 60, in, in the latter half of verse 60, the Lord says that he will establish a new and everlasting covenant. Brothers and sisters, this is the new covenant in Christ's blood. That, verse 61, is not like the former covenant. However, I want you to notice or make note of something that the word used for establish in verse 60, it is, you could say, something like Hebrew technical language for the confirmation or the fulfillment of an already existing covenant. And, and he says... He says as much at the beginning of verse 60 that he will remember the former covenant that he made with Israel and in remembering it, that is in fulfilling its promises, he will thereby establish the new covenant. This serves to 
in a certain way to tie together the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, showing an underlying continuity between God's promises made to Israel and his ultimate fulfillment of those promises in relation to Christ and for the sake of his church. Israel's hope of a future, that is a future with the Lord, is not that of a nation, but must be seen in relation to Christ and his church. Here I want you to see that although national Israel is cut off from the from the covenant and is is made a stranger from the covenants of promise in the exile. The covenant itself was not forgotten. The Lord says he will remember it. When it was when it was taken, the covenant was taken away from them, when they were taken away into exile, the covenant itself entered into a state of abeyance until the Lord himself brought it into remembrance. Now, may I suggest that we all learn this word, abeyance, not obeyance. It begins with an A, A A-B-E-Y-A-N-C-E, abeyance. Abeyance is is a legal term. It's a legal term that refers to something that is unclaimed and waiting for its rightful owner to come and claim it. The Lord's covenant with Israel was in a state of abeyance until such a time as its rightful owner claimed it, remembered it, and fulfilled it. Who is the rightful owner? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the true Son of God, the true servant of the Lord, the true vine, the true seed of Abraham, the son of David, the true prophet, priest, and king. Brothers and sisters, the true Israel of God born under the law, to redeem those condemned under the law. In his active obedience, he has fulfilled the righteous demands of the law in our place, and he has purchased every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By his passive obedience and suffering, he has satisfied the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 63, when I provide you an atonement for all you have done. Jesus is the faithful Israel, who is, in the truest sense, on the spiritual level, has fulfilled the old covenant, has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the covenant, a covenant of law and of works, so that by the merit of his own works, he might make a new covenant with us, an everlasting covenant of grace. He fulfilled the covenant of works in our place so that he might make with us a covenant of grace, established upon his works rather than our own. He remembers. He fulfills the old so that he may establish the new after which the old becomes entirely obsolete, Hebrews 8 and verse 13. Israel's hope of a future is not a geopolitical future, but a spiritual one, a spiritual hope, not in some future reestablishment of the old covenant in the land, 
but in the establishment of the new covenant through the fulfillment of the old in Christ. So that leads us into our third question, and that is, what shall we say then? Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 1, what shall we say then? Has God cast away his people? Well, the nation as a nation, yes. But his people? Well, absolutely not. As the apostle answers in Romans 9, they are not all Israel who are of the nation of Israel. On the short amount of time that we, that we have left, notice what we're told in verse 53. When he brings back the captives, who does he bring back into his covenantal embrace? The captives of Sodom and her daughters. The captives of Samaria and her daughters. And then he says, he will bring back Judah among them. Among Sodom and among Samaria and not the other way around. So Gentile-born Sodom, Gentile Sodom, does not have to convert to Judaism but they do have to convert to Christ. And Jewish Jerusalem has to stop thinking as a Pharisee, stop saying, thank God I am not like them. They have to acknowledge that they are no no better spiritually than her Gentile sister, Sodom. And they need to be converted to Christ. They too have to acknowledge their guilt and their shame. They need to be humbled for their sins and they need to see that they are no more righteous than Sodom. No more deserving of God's blessing than Samaria. And no less in need of God's grace. And they need to begin to beat their breast saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 11. He says, I say then, have the Jews stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So salvation has come to her Gentile sister Sodom, so that elect Jews might be stirred up unto holy jealousy and come to Christ along with them. This is God's plan for the Jews, and this is their only hope for a future. To join the Gentiles in uniting themselves to Christ and to his church, the new Israel of God. Brothers and sisters, This is our only hope for a future. Whether we are a daughter of Sodom or a daughter of Jerusalem, there is no longer any distinction. And there is no hope for us until we come to confess that for ourselves. We too must know the guilt and the shame of our own sin before we can see our need for grace and for a savior. 
verse 63, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore. In other words, never justify yourself anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done. Is this you? Look away from yourself. Put no confidence in the flesh, but cleave to the, to the true Israel of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, no less than a, a wife is to cleave to her husband. And may we not forget the days of our youth and grow self-righteous and self-reliant. I'll leave you with these words from Patrick Fairburn. He says, the first and last feeling in every regenerate bosom must be one of deep abasement and entire renunciation of self, spontaneously yielding the praise and glory to God. We should strive to remember how unworthy we naturally are of such singular goodness so that we may give to him all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we, <clears throat> we pray that if there be any who do not know Christ this hour, this morning, that you might bring them to a sense of their own sin their own guilt and shame, that you would shut every mouth, stop every mouth from making excuse or justifying themselves, but grant them the faith to see their sin and to see their need of grace and of a savior and to seek their justifying, their justification in Christ alone. Our Father, we pray that for we who know Christ, that you would teach us that the whole Christian life, not just coming unto faith in Christ, but the whole Christian life is one of self-abasement, one of self-renunciation, the mortification of the flesh, the humbling of ourselves, and repenting daily of our sins. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us this evangelical gospel grace of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, help us to know our sin that we might know our Savior better. We pray in his name. Amen.